You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. Today we have in the studio writer Lori R. King. She's Her new book is Touchstone. She'll be taking your calls, answering your questions, and answering questions from the Internet from across the nation and around the world. Coming up next on Talk of the Bay. The views expressed in this program are not necessarily those of KUSP. And now we'll hear from Lori R. King. Lori R. King is the best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, including Locked Rooms, The Game, and The Art of Detection. Her new novel is A Touchstone. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you. Lori, uh, let's get a little bit of a setup for your new novel because it's not a Mary Russell it's, Sherlock Holmes novel, is it? It's not a Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novel. No, it really isn't. And when we last spoke, you told me it was going to be an English country house mystery. And it's not quite so genteel. No, no, it turned more thrillerdom, didn't it? Yeah, it, it yes. sort of edged past the past the genteel mystery and into the into the more cutting edge edges of the genre. So, yeah, Con- country house political thriller, perhaps. Uh, yes. Well, it, it begins with a really interesting character. His name is Bennett Gray, and he has a little bit to do with the title of the book, doesn't he? Bennett Gray is a human touchstone. A touchstone is um, a way of judging the purity of gold or silver, um, chemically, alchemically, I suppose you'd say. And Bennett Gray is a way, has the the gift, uh, I don't know if he would call it that, but the ability to tell truth at a glance. Um, he is a human touchstone. And, and as the novel begins... We ha- it's set in 1926 in the United Kingdom in England. Things weren't going so hot in England back then, were they? Oh, they were very hot, Rick. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah. No, no. It, I mean, this, this is the fascinating thing. When you start looking back at history, you find these interesting patterns that repeat themselves. And in the 20s in England, <clears throat> um, although we think of the 20s as being a social time with, um, you know, I mean, we had speakeasies and they didn't. But... Uh, you you think of the 20s as being a wild social time but in fact it was a time of tremendous political upheaval and uh, as i was as i was reading through the history of the 20s over the last few years i came across this period in the spring of 1926 when as far as britain was concerned it was on the brink of outright revolution um they fully expected expected um, you know blood in the streets and and uh, a revolt of the working classes and into this melee comes somebody from the United States, kind of a little bit of a club-footed big guy from the uh, named at the time the Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, poor poor Harris Stuyvesant wanders into this um, this situation. He's a he's a Yank. What can I say? He's a Yank, a stranger in a strange land who comes over to England expecting 
you know, tea parties and and thumbs in the air and and the, and he finds sort of eight eight days after he gets there, he's in fist fights with uh, with union demonstrators and not quite sure how he got there. He's there to pursue a, a homegrown American terrorist. Well, what he's looking for is someone who is has been setting bombs on American soil. And he has reason to believe that this is not a good old-fashioned homegrown American terrorist, but an imported one, a, a Brit who has the nerve to sail across the Pacific, I mean the Atlantic, and, and set his bombs on American territory. So. Once he arrives, he's shunted around a bit, and then he meets a, a, a most unsavory but unfortunately helpful character <laughs> as well. <laughs> It's the way it happens sometimes, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Alistair Carstairs um, is with intelligence. It wouldn't surprise anyone to find that. Um, and Alistair Carstairs is very anxious to get his hands back on Touchstone, the human Touchstone Bennett Gray, for obvious reasons. Um, anyone who can tell truth at a glance, such as Bennett Gray can, um, is a valuable resource for the British government. And once... The way to find this exported terrorist is to go through the human touchstone. Yes, his path takes him in interesting interesting ways, doesn't it? Yeah. It, this is a wonderful novel. It, it features a, a rather large set cast of characters, larger than your usual uh, books. It's a big book in in all the ways of that description. Yeah, yeah. It has six major characters. Four uh, women and two men are the main characters, and each of them has their time in the in the plot. Um, each of them gets a chance to get their voice in and their attitudes in. And this is. This is, of course, what interested me is the ability to look in in a novel. You can look at all the different sides of a of a question or conundrum, um, and in fact, the more complex a novel, <clears throat> the more necessary it is to look at all the different sides. Well, this brings me to a question from one of our listeners in Aptos, um, Claire in Aptos. We're going to dig this question out. Yes. Claire from Aptos would like you to talk about the terrorist in your book because in your book, by putting in a setting that she understood historically where the terrorists were fighting for workers' rights, rights that we now all see as reasonable and just, she was able to put a human face on the terrorist and understand that they could be working for something that was just, that the terrorists can speak for those who have no voice. Did you intend to make your readers think of terrorists today and who they might be beyond the media spin. The, the, this this draws back the thing that you started this program by saying is that opinions are not necessarily those of KUSP. I, as I was writing Touchstone, one of the things that was continually in the back of my mind was this question from those early weeks after 9-11 when we we asked ourselves why exactly this had happened and for a while it looked as though a serious and open armed discussion would take place of what is it that we can do so that we don't you know we don't strike these folks as the bad guy um that that openness didn't last for long but I thought it important enough to permeate this particular book. That is, 
Terrorism is a is a thing of the 20th century. Um, it really began in the late 19th, but came to its fruition in the 20th century. And it is clearly a valuable way of for some people to express their opinions. Um, I, I mean, why why was this? Um, what is it that makes a terrorist act um, a desirable thing on the part of the radical radicals who do it? And this is w- what was going on in the book. Um, there are certain people in the book who make terrorist acts, and I'm looking at why. And you make them uh, sympathetic to us. We understand why they're doing that. And in fact, we even at this point in our history agree with their goals. In this case, yeah. If you would like to call in, you can ask Lori King a question. The phone numbers are 476-2800 or 1-800-655-5877. Lori, one of the things that I think this book does really well is to, with all sorts of... um, all the visions that you have of this time of history, I can't turn a page of this book without thinking of something that's happening now, whether it has to do with the inequality of income distribution or the workers' rights that, you know, the fact that unions were once so strong that they could bring a country to a halt. That's inconceivable these days. Yes and no. Um, <laughs> I Yeah, a, a number of the the specific goals that are going on in this book. And the book is a lot about politics, but it's also about the human face of politics. Um, I I was interested in looking at, um, yes, these things that seemed so out of place and radical then are quite accepted now. Of course you have a living wage for your coal miners. Of course you, you give them a reasonable number of hours a week and health benefits and the rest of it. Um, and you sort of wonder in a hundred years, you know, granted th- this took place 80 years ago, 80 years from now, what will be an accepted um, approach to, for example, radical Islam? Uh, you know, what, what will seem, well, of course we do that. Doesn't everyone? Let's go to uh, one of our questions. This is Carlina from your virtual book club. She says, Hi, Lori. I'm one of your virtual book club members who have been dreadfully busy lately. Firstly, I wanted to congratulate you on the success of Touchstone has had thus far. It is well-garnered and well-earned. I also wanted to ask you what inspired you to write Touchstone. It's a different creature compared to your other books, the Russell and Kate series. Was the idea of Touchstone something that just popped into your mind, or were the themes and characters in the book something that you had thought about exploring for some time but just couldn't do in the context of your other works? Yeah, it's it's exact. In fact, it's one of the um, one of the things we've been talking about on the the, the blog that I keep is um, the difference between a a standalone, which Touchstone is at this point, and a series novel. With a series, you you have a certain leisure to um, to to deal with things or leave them undealt with because you have um, always the knowledge that there were books before that explained certain things and books to come that you can pick stuff up on. Um, whereas with a standalone, you, you really have to have the entire universe of those characters beginning to end and even before the beginning of the story, you have to have a sense of their past and where they come from. 
And towards the end of the story, you need to have a feel for where they go after that. So there's a sort of intensity in a standalone that you really can't get with a series novel. A series novel, you always know that there's going to be more um, and that there were were some before. Um, This makes for a kind of writing that I can't get in a series. So every so often, I like to really, really get my teeth into a project. And that means a standalone. And this seems like a good uh, jump-off point for this question from Cesar uh, from Chicago. He'd like to ask you what your process is like and how it is different for Touchstone. Does she write outlines or does she just jump right into drafts? How much historical research references does she do before beginning writing the book? Oh, I I wish I could write outlines. <laughs> I was I was always one of those kids in school who you know you had to hand in the outline and then the week later you had to hand in the paper. I was always one of those kids that wrote the paper, made an outline out of it, and handed that in because it just I just couldn't think without doing. Um, and I. I I I just never have learned how to do that. I can occasionally do a really brief sketch of something, but that's about as as thorough as it gets. Um, I usually have, when I start a book, I have the flavor in mind. I I know what I want to taste as I'm going through the entire book. Um, And in Touchstone, it was this interesting relationship between the six people. Um, I knew that all of my characters, I knew from the beginning that I was having this many characters and I knew that I needed all of their lives to mesh like gears um, and move the story forward. So that uh, with with no outline in mind, um, it means a lot of rewrites. <laughs> because when you finish the first draft, of course, this is a very rough sort of expanded outline. I mean, you've got 300, 400 pages that give you the basic plot of the book, but it certainly is not a novel. And the rewrite all involves um, making a novel out of that raw material. When you're rewriting, then do you go back and... and- try to do a through line or an outline? You you said you that's what you used to do in school. Is that what you do when you do the novel? <laughs> yes. Sometimes sometimes I'll actually plot it out. With with Touchstone I did do a fair amount of that. Um you know, analyzing what was going on in each chapter and each of the separate books. But um for the most part I, I let that kind of thing sit in the back of my head and look at it um you know, unconsciously, as it were. I think I think it's sort of the difference. When you're learning to speak a language, you can either go to school and memorize the verb forms and um, memorize how you you use pronouns and all the rest of it, or you can drop yourself down in a country where they speak no English and and just go from there. Well, of course, that's the way they get lost, thoroughly, completely lost. But you also learn to speak organically um, because you are learning it through your ears rather than through a book. 
Sure, and because you need to know how to get where the toothpaste is. Yeah, and you may be ungrammatical when you first start, but you gradually get better. And those of us who never really took writing classes past the basic requirements of the BA degree um, learn to write by reading. We learn it um, by absorbing the patterns of other people. Which makes analysis a little difficult because we don't know the terminology. When I first started, I, I came up, I don't even remember what book it was, but I came up with this really clever, clever technique. And I was so proud of myself the way, you know, I had a little event happening and then 80 or 100 pages later, I, I sort of had a different form of that, that event. And it was just so clever. It wasn't until years later that I discovered this was called foreshadowing and everybody did it. <laughs> so. So you know, you know, sometimes it's better to to know what you're doing before you go into it. Um. We're just, we're speaking with Lori R. King, and you can call in your questions for her at four seven six twenty eight hundred or at one eight hundred six five 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 eight seven seven. Lori, we were talking earlier about this as a English country house mystery, and I've got a question here from Vicky, and um, she has two questions. One we'll get to later, but. This one here has quite a bit to do with this country house mystery thing because it, it, there's really a, a certain form to that. And she wanted to know, the Hurley family really put me in mind of Lord Peter's family, especially his sister Lady Mary in her red period. Was she in your mind as you wrote Sarah and or Laura? Oh, Lady Mary's red period, meaning meaning Bolshevik period, I think. Presumably, um, <laughs> not not like Picasso's blue period. I don't remember Lady Mary being a painter. Um, I think more the the Hurley family and Touchstone takes place in part at a Duke's family house, estate house out in the countryside in Gloucestershire, and involves some of his family. Um, I I think if anything. That menage is based on the Mitfords. The Mitfords were this wild bunch of mostly women um, whose whose mother once said in despair that whenever she saw the headline "Piers' daughter in scandal," she knew, <laughs> she knew it would be one of them. Um, one of them was a writer. One of them became Jessica Mitford, who you know exposed the American way of death, among other things. Um, one of them became a great follower of Hitler and um, committed suicide during the when it became obvious that her English background and the Germans were no longer compatible. Um, tried to commit suicide, and uh, one of them married um, mostly the the fascists. So, you know, they were for for women who had basically no education. Um, they were in the center of British politics um, for for a number of years. And they were a wild bunch, um, well well worth reading their collected letters or um, biographies. The House of Mitford is a great book. So I think I had those in mind. Very, very English. Um, this ability of a family who had no particular claim to ability <laughs> to to get into the middle of things. Um, we have here a question from David E. Lamson. He's from the internet, and he wants to know, 
Why hasn't one anyone been smart enough to make a movie or TV miniseries out of one of your great works? Now, that bears upon a little bit of copyright uh, law that I think uh, has recently come to pass. Is that not true? Is it? I, uh, well, uh, didn't uh, Sherlock Holmes just... Did he pass into the public domain? Yeah, several years ago. Yeah. Four, four years ago, I think, in yeah. England. Um, yeah, I... You know, I mean, it's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Why isn't why isn't anyone smart enough to do <laughs> to do this? But um, there's part of the problem with writing a historical series is that if you're going to film it, you need to do very expensive um, sets, oh, yeah. either sets or f- location um, photography, which makes any kind of film an expensive proposition so that's part of the problem um i don't know i've talked to various people in in hollywood about it and we've never gotten beyond the talk about it stage but you know i'm i'm not worried so have your scripts been optioned or i would presume some of your novels have been optioned i've done some options um one of them got as far as a screenplay and talking about casting when um it was going to be for a I think it was a CBS Sunday night movie, and then they CBS decided it was no longer in the business of making Sunday night movies. So. <laughs> well, here we have a question from J.P. Duvall, uh, the Mary Russell series. Um, he's from Georgia, and he once says, I'm a huge fan of Mary, Laurie R. King's Mary Russell series and have been introduced many friends to the books. I find most of the books wonderfully satisfying, and I hope that We've all read Locked Rooms. If we haven't read Locked Rooms, time to plug your ears. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert, yes. But he was disappointed that there was no final scene in Locked Rooms in which Mary encountered her friend after discovering that her friend's father had been responsible for the deaths of Mary's family and other loved ones. Would Mrs. King comment on why she made that choice? I guess I just wanted to hear the friend say how very, very sorry she was, as I am, and how to hear how Mary would respond. Um, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. I thought there was a scene in there referred to. Not a a specific scene, but I thought there was something referred to. Um, It's one of those that it's it's tough when you're writing the tail end of a novel because the balance do you remember remember <laughs> the the endings the interminable endings for the Lord of the Rings movies oh my god I mean god. <laughs> clearly there were many many things that they needed to finish off and and so they just made an ending for each possible theme in the book I mean in the in the movies um and that's a real danger in a novel that has a, a number of different things going on is that you end up with several endings which might be satisfying from a tie off all the loose ends point of view but from the point of view of drama and balance it it sometimes is necessary to leave things out so i'm i'm sorry we're speaking with Laurie R. King. Her new book is Touchstone, and you can give us a call at 476-2800 or 1-800-655-5877. We're going to take a brief break here and hear the literary events calendar 
for this week. And then we'll come back with Lori R. King. Phone in your questions. For KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of January 25th. To include your event in our listing, please email me at literary at kusp.org. At Bookshop Santa Cruz on Saturday, January 26th at 7.30 p.m., come hear Laurie King reading from her newest book, Touchstone, a standalone novel set in Great Britain between world wars. Hailed for her rich and powerful works of psychological suspense, as well as her New York Times best-selling mysteries, Lori R. King now takes us to a remote cottage in Cornwall, where a gripping tale of intrigue, terrorism, and explosive passions begins with a visit to a recluse upon whom the fate of an entire nation may rest, a man codenamed Touchstone. Touchstone is both a harrowing thriller by a master of the genre and a thought-provoking exploration of the forces that drive history and human destinies. Call 423-0900 for more information. At Capitola Book Cafe on Monday, January 28th at 7.30 p.m., Neil Shubin reveals Your Inner Fish, a journey into the 3.5 billion year history of the human body, which tells the story of evolution by tracing the organs of the human body back millions of years, long before the first creatures walked the earth. By examining fossils and DNA, Shubin shows us that our hands actually resemble fish fins. Our head is organized like that of a long extinct jawless fish and major parts of our genome look and function like those of worms and bacteria. Use your fins to call 462-4415 for details. At Gateway's Books and Gifts on Wednesday, January 30th at 7 p.m., Bill Plotkin explores nature and the human soul. Is there really anything we as individuals can do to help ensure a healthy future on Earth? In this hopeful and inspiring evening, depth psychologist and wilderness guide Bill Plotkin says there most certainly is. Individually and culturally, we need to grow up. He'll challenge us to evolve beyond our society's current adolescent habits and desires toward true adulthood and elderhood. His new book introduces a new and visionary developmental psychology that shows how fully and creatively we can mature when we allow soul and wild nature to guide us. Call 429-9600 for details. For KUSP Friday Talk of the Bay, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and around the county for the week of January 25th. Get out there and read a book. We're here with Lori King, and I would like to add to the literary events calendar that she'll be appearing at the Santa Cruz Public Library at 2 p.m. on Sunday Four authors for Mysterious California, from Mysterious California. It's a video done by the California Center for the Book. This will feature Lori King, Kirk Russell, Nina Lavoisier, and Nadia Gordon. And they'll all be there talking about California as a place in their books. And this is bound to be a totally entertaining and excellent discussion. It's at the Santa Cruz Public Library on 2 p.m. on Sunday. And what do you want to know about 
uh, talk of the bay uh, about <laughs> Lori R. King's uh, new book, her old books. Give us a call at 476-2800-1800-655-5877. We have a question from Meridaya from Pasadena. Uh, research on Touchstone. Uh, was it particularly intriguing? The research itself? Yes. <laughs> research is always intriguing. I mean, re- research is one of those things that if, if I didn't have to earn a living, I'd, I'd probably just do the research. Um, <clears throat> you know, when, you, when you're first starting a novel, you're looking at um, all the potential places um, that, that you could stick in. Um, I mean, you've got a place and time in mind. But after that, you you set your um, goals out there in research with – it's more like a piece of grit and an oyster. I mean, you're hope, hoping that bits and pieces of what you read and things you come across will glue themselves on to to this idea of writing a book set in April 1926. Um, and if you're lucky – enough of them attach themselves that um that you end up with an oyster and uh, uh, you know with the, you end up with a, a pearl and not just a, a hunk of grit uh, meredith uh did Lori king answer your question uh yeah to a great degree hi Lori. i hope hi. you're doing well hi meredith we were just going by your your voice on the electronics and i'm glad to hear an actual voice how are you i'm just fine uh I wondered if there was anything that particularly surprised you when you were working on the research for Touchstone. Well, yeah, I suppose you could say surprised me. I I was um, rewarded, shall we say, by finding the number of um, links or parallels with with modern times. Um, I mean, you tend to think of history as being dead, don't you? I mean, those of us who don't who don't live back in the 20s but when you find these um people and um events that are like today's headlines you know what what is that awful thing of ripped from the headline <laughs> i mean granted you you can no longer rip things from headlines that are 80 years old because they're all on microfilm but you get the idea <laughs> i mean it might as well be um modern modern times um the passion the um the irrational amount of commitment to a cause um the division between have the haves and have nots um are the things that when i was reading through uh, der- the the manuscripts i mean the documents for the time and um and looking at the events um those were the things that that really struck me was how very modern they were One of the things, uh, Laurie, that this brings up is there are some really interesting uh, um, events that you allude to in the book that these days, I think, whether we want to admit it or not, we're all really pretty terrified of the idea of suicide bombers on American soil. And this wouldn't be new, though, would it? No, no. I mean, this was part of the part of the anarchist methods of the early part the late <clears throat> late 19th century early 20th century 
Um, there's a couple of them that I mention in the book because I think we f- we do, as Meredith asked about. I mean, we we do forget that um, there are traditions in all sorts of things, including how one um, carries out terrorist acts, and the, some of those those are alluded to in the book. Um, one of the ones that I found particularly colorful. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but but particularly evocative, in part because my son was at the time in Iraq, um, was the the um, IED, the improvised explosive device that um, was left out in front of the J.P. Morgan Bank in New York in 1920, and a fellow drove his horse cart up to the front of the bank, loaded it with um, with dynamite and scrap metal and walked away, and the thing exploded at, at noon. Um, and, you know, th- this, this might be modern life. Um, this was the first um, car bomb, or cart bomb. <laughs> yes. Uh, one thing that, that also interested me, too, was, was the uh, bombings of the judges. That That's really pretty scary and again mm. an echo of, of what th- things we've seen recently back in the back in the 90s with the uh, Oklahoma tower bombings yeah yeah, yeah. and it's <clears throat> it's it's one of those things that is in the 1920s or now is nearly ex- nearly impossible to defend yourself against we have a question from somebody who's um, off air, and they would like to know how your husband's projects are doing. Husband's projects? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, he's he's uh, working hard on um, a translation of a fourteenth-century um, Muslim traveler to Sultanate India. Now, now there's a minor project for an eighty-five-year-old. <laughs> Stroke victim. I think everybody should have a hobby, don't you? <laughs> uh, let's talk about one of the aspects of your book, this new book that I found really fascinating, was the uh, just anarchism itself. You have a, a, a character. Some you mentioned somebody named Ivy Sweethome. Was she a real person? No, I. Uh, you're, you're lying. You're a fiction writer. This is fiction, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> That's what you're going to tell me. This is always kind of tricky. The the um, dividing line between fact and fiction, and and if um, if you do it well enough, you have people like like you, Rick, asking me, "Is this a real thing?" And I say, "No." Um, and then you say, no, this is made up, right? And I say, no, that, that, that's real. <laughs> no, Ivy Sweet Home is, <clears throat> she herself is fictional, yes. But J. Edgar Hoover, at the age of 24 in 1920, wasn't. And he was putting down the anarchists and commies and thinking that they were done. It's a fascinating story, that of the what is now called the FBI, um, was at the time of Touchstone called the Bureau of Investigation. Um, the fact that it started as a way of um, protecting banks. I mean, it was banks were its main interest. And it then went to organized crime and to politics. And um, in 1926, it was shifting away from radical politics into um, the, <laughs> the problems of prohibition so that it you know the fbi has really been searching for its for its goal in life ever since it was started 
we have here a question. This is a from uh, Marjorie from Connecticut asks, she says, first of all, she wants to thank you for changing my life over the past year. Uh, I'm just going to read her email. I read The Beekeeper's Apprentice and was completely under the spell of your Mary Russells and Sherlock Holmes and I have loved all the other Russell books in the series. Thank you for that. But I just finished reading Touchstone and initially thought that I wouldn't warm up to a novel of yours without these beloved characters. And I am delighted to say that Touchstone is fantastic, gripping, and moving. Now that you have created the intriguing characters in in Touchstone, will there be will will any of them return for a second book in the series? And we also have that same question uh, from a couple of other of our internet. Um, Addressees. Yeah, I, I really didn't write that question. That that gripping stuff on there, I didn't write that, Rick. It's not, <laughs> not one of mine. Um, thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um as I said, when I when I wrote Touchstone, I intended it to be a standalone. That was the whole the the whole thrust of the novel was beginning to end that universe is a is a separate thing. But Afterwards, after I'd finished it, I realized that some of the characters were really appealing. Um, and I won't go into names because some of them n- don't go past the last pages of the book. And uh, I'm not going to tell you which ones. Um, but the idea of um, of doing a, not necessarily a series, but maybe a trilogy or something spanning 1926 to the mid-30s would be very interesting. You know, I, I like that. What you just said is that's an interesting comment. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you, as a writer, um, would conceive of the difference between a trilogy and a series. Well, of course, a trilogy is a series, but it's <clears throat> it is more limited. I mean, it's I I would think of it as a more limited thing than an open-ended series. Uh, obviously. The Russell and Holmes series. I'm working on the ninth one now, so clearly I have <laughs> I have no problems in letting that one wander along <laughs> anywhere. But I think if you if you know that you have um, an endpoint in sight, whether it's three books or ten books or however, um, I I think that it keeps the focus tighter than allowing slices of life as it were which is really what a series is is you have somebody who might live for 30 years and each book is a month or two months out of their life Uh, there's a a writer named f paul wilson who wrote a series wrote a a book um called the keep and then after two books later he wrote a book in which essentially the world came to a grinding halt and now he's going back and filling in <laughs> the time from the beginning to the end and it's his time slices are becoming ever less uh you know workable <laughs> but it, it's an interesting challenge that once you create those kind of uh, series writing uh, yourself into a corner yeah writing yourself into a corner we're speaking with Lori R King her new book is Touchstone and if there's anything you need to know what about Laurie King's books do, do you still remains a mystery to you, even having read the mystery? You can call at 476-2800 or 1-800-655-5877 and ask Laurie. Laurie, one of the things that, that, that uh, one of our Internet readers wanted to know was 
you began your career writing uh, books from the female point of view, and you you've stuck to that up till a point. Uh, Keeping Dark, Keeping Watch was your first book with a male, yeah, through mostly male protagonist. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on the uh, <clears throat> problems or the challenges going back and forth between writing for different genders, and which do you prefer? Which make which is easier for you? Well. When I started writing, I was working on the Russells, which are in the first person and therefore necess- necessarily um, f- female. I mean, I, I don't suppose they absolutely have to be female, but um, they they were for this beginning writer. And I then started writing the Martinelli series with her partner as a male. So you you begin to see bits and pieces of... Um, of the the male point of view, not a lot, but just bits and pieces. And I then decided that I wanted to to try doing an entire book with um, from the male point of view, um, and that's where um, Keeping Watch came out. Um, partly because that particular character had to have been a male. I mean, he he had been a soldier in Vietnam, and so that there weren't too many soldiers in Vietnam who, who were not men. Um, so I, I, my decisions were made for me with that one. You're writing yourself into a corner. <clears throat> yeah, well, you know, it's yeah. an interesting place to be as a corner, and mm-hmm. there's lots of walls and points to it. Um, but with Touchstone, because I wanted to have multiple points of view, um, I really wanted to have each of the each of the people fully realized um which was which was kind of an interesting experience because i i went in and, and i i wanted stuyvesant to be this real heavy fisted guy i mean a real guy of a of a character and uh, and and so i i just Went through all of my boy books on my shelf and reread them all. I mean, Lee Child and all the rest of, them. and it was great fun. I mean, have an excuse for having an orgy of boy books, and 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 so that's where Stuyvesant came from. His, you you can blame all you know Bob Crace and the rest of them for him. On the line we have Jane from Santa Cruz. Uh, well, we lost Jane, but we have her question. Now, will there be more <laughs> Kate? I'm Martin- sorry, Jane. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> <laughs> Come back. Will there be more Kate Martinelli series books? Uh, probably. It's it's tough because um you know, I've got I've got one series going, I've got the Martinelli series going, and I'm I now may make the touchstone into the series. <laughs> and so there's only so many balls I can juggle at once. Um I think that Martinelli the Martinelli books need another couple of volumes. Um I think that those would probably be best with a kind of arc to the storyline that came to an end. Um, there's five books out there now, so maybe two, two or three more. Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure. If I live long enough, yeah. <laughs> so, from Aaron in the virtual book club, we have this question. There have been many musical references in a handful of the LRK novels, Touchstone with Child, etc. Laurie, do you associate any particular music with your characters or use music to get a feel for the time period you are writing about? I should mention that this uh, reference to the Virtual Book Club, if any of you are interested out there, if you go to the Laurie King website, laurierking.com, 
you can find the link to the virtual book club and to my blog mutterings and, and to Mary Russell's MySpace page. So um, if you really wanted to find out about 107-year-old Mary Russell, and she's quite, quite an active lady, it's all there on the page. Um, now, what was the question? Let's see. Uh, musical references. Musical references. You know, it's it's funny. I'm I'm just not that into music. I, I'm I shouldn't even open my mouth and say this because I'm sitting in a studio that's absolutely solid with CDs, and I feel like they're going to jump off the shelf and beat me like, like the cards in Alice in Wonderland. But it's, you know, it's just not something that I link up in my mind to music, which is, which is odd because a number of crime writers, um, music is a part of what they do, especially uh, there's a two or three guy writers. Um, George Pelicanos, you uses references to music constantly. Um, John Harvey, a British guy who's not terribly well known here, very fine writer. Um, his books are permeated with references to um, blues and jazz. Um, Ian Rankin. It's just not something that I link up with. Um, I, I have a limited number of um, places where I, I can accept stimulation and I can either produce words or else I can listen to music and my poor brain can't handle both. <laughs> and, and we have another question from Carrie of the Virtual Book Club. She wants to know the extent to which an author needs to be hyper-conscious of his or her preconceptions and prejudices when trying to write from a POV radically different from that of your, his or her own, especially a different John gender. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's one of the places that I really heavily depend on my editor for. Because especially in the first draft, the characters tend to resemble each other a lot, since mostly what I'm looking at is is storyline and plot. I'm trying to get the story just to hang together on the page and make sure that everything actually <laughs> ends up right. It's it, it's scary when you don't know where the story is going and you you get to the end and the relief is huge that it actually worked yet again um but characters then tend to get somewhat set aside as you're working i mean you'll have a vague idea and occasionally bits of their personality will come out but in the rewrite and with the editor's feedback um i try and really zero in on the differences in the in the characters really zero in on what are their key characteristics how would this person talk as opposed to that, that person? If I have a page of dialogue or five pages of dialogue, can you tell at any one given point which character is speaking unless I say, you know, he said, she said, Stuyvesant said, Gray said. I, I want every appearance and every thought of those individuals to reflect their, their differences. So, yeah, that's, that's the tough part. It sounds tough. We've been speaking with Lori King. Her new book is Touchstone. Thank you for joining us, Lori. I'm happy to join you anytime, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.